Welcome to Embargo, intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I'm one of your hosts, Tim O'Toole, and with me today is my friend, colleague, and co-host, Leah Mushi, um, who is works with me at Miller Chevalier, and I'll let Leah tell you a little bit more about herself. Welcome, sure. Leah. Tim. I'm so excited to join you today. Um, I'm a counsel at Miller and Chevalier. I've been at the firm for just over seven years now. Um, I work on a variety of matters um, related to financial crimes. I split my time about 50-50 doing compliance work and investigations. Um, some of the substantive areas that we focus on are Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, um, money laundering, anti-money laundering related work, and of course, sanctions. Um, your bread and butter, Tim. So exactly. Here. Well, and Leah is becoming a sanctions and money laundering pro. And so, you know, we've worked on a number of matters lately. And, uh, you know, when I say worked, I, I mean it loosely. Leah's worked on the matters, and I've been lucky enough to kind of watch her work on those matters. And and so, you know, we've started to collaborate on um, AML issues and sanctions issues. And uh, one of the things that we've had quite a bit of interest in is cryptocurrency, which Brian and I talked about uh, a, a while ago. I think episodes 37 and 38, we talked a little bit about OFAC's um, guide to digital currency, and we've we've talked a little bit about some of the designations. But today, we're going to focus on not only cryptocurrency, but uh, mixers and Tornado Cash and the recent litigation involving Tornado Cash in, in Texas, which I think is now up in the Fifth Circuit. And uh, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Leah to give a little bit of background about Tornado Cash and the litigation, and we'll, we'll go from there. Sure. Um, yes, it's an exciting and I think very timely um, topic this fall in particular. has There's been a lot of movement uh, by U.S. regulators in the, in the mixer space, and a lot of that has to do with tornado cash. So, We'll talk about sort of two different aspects of the tornado legal tornado cash legal proceedings that are going on. So first, we'll talk about OFAC's designation and the challenges, as as you reference. Also, there's um, some criminal proceedings that are ongoing with individuals who are alleged to be involved in in tornado cash. Um, so just starting with the OFAC designation challenges. So starting from the beginning, back in 2022. OFAC designated Tornado Cash, which uh, represents or represents itself as a decentralized uh, mixing service. Uh, so what they they do is um, they're smart contracts. So there are these self-executing software protocols, essentially, that allow users to directly engage with the software. And what the mixing service does is users can um, Users can take their crypto and essentially at the, the protocol, the smart contracts, will aggregate it, mix it up with other users' uh, assets. And then ultimately, when the user wants to pull out the assets that it has, has put into the protocol, it allows the user to do so, but in an anonymized way. So if someone's looking at the blockchain, you there's there's somewhat of a disruption so it obfuscates where the funds initially came from um and ofac ultimately decided to sanction tornado cash in large part because they um they noted that tornado cash 
was involved in helping to facilitate uh, the mixing of a large amount of funds um, by Lazarus Group, uh, which they allege to have been heisted by Lazarus Group, which is a um, state sponsor, a North Korean state sponsored hacking group. Um, and and given um, given Lazarus Group's had, that that had already been designated and their um, ties to the North Korean um, weapons of mass destruction program, OFAC designated uh, Tornado Cash. Um, and I, and I'm going to st- I'm going to stop you right there. Just a couple of things about that because I I looked back at the designation this morning just in in prep for this, and there were things that I noted that I think um, become relevant in litigation. So one is that when OFAC kind when OFAC designated Tornado Cash, it made very clear that most mixing services are legitimate activity, but that it was designating tornado cash because it didn't have policies and procedures in place to, to screen. And in fact, because of that, lots of, as you just pointed out, the Lazarus group, which is an SDN, and then other groups that you know were engaged in what OFAC would call malign activity, were using, uh, were using tornado cash as service in a way that was beyond legitimate activity. But they, they do talk about legitimate activity through mixers. And so I, I thought that was important to point out at this stage because as time goes on, because this was over a year ago at this point, I think OFAC's attitude towards mixers has gotten a lot more skeptical. But at least in August of 2022, that was the theme of the designation was, yeah, most of this is legit, but Tornado Cash is over the line. Sorry to interrupt, but I just... No, no it's important context. And in fact, we'll talk about you know Treasury more broadly having I'm adopting more skeptical view of mixers, as we saw from, um, you know, last week, FinCEN's proposed new rule to designate um, uh, CBC mixing as a primary money laundering concern. So I think that underscores your point, which is, um, yes, the government will acknowledge that there are legitimate uses for mixing services. I think a good example is, you know, dissidents in in countries that are under authoritarian regime trying to use... um, mixing services and other autonomized um, tools in, in the crypto space uh, to, you know, in order to get funds without being tracked. Um, but it is true that the government is increasingly skeptical. Um, so, so in the context of this litigation, um, there was a group of plaintiffs that challenged OFAC's designation of Tornado Cash um, under three primary grounds. First, uh, and, and frankly, the bulk of the the, the crux of the litigation focused on whether or not OFAC violated the Administrative Procedures Act by basically going going beyond or exceeding its authority under the relevant statutes. There are also some First Amendment free speech claims and some Fifth Amendment takings clause claims that were argued. Ultimately, the court sided with OFAC. Um, and again, much of the opinion focuses on the challenges under as to whether or not OFAC exceeded its its regulatory authority, um, and, and I think the way that the plaintiffs laid out the argument was that um, was that first of all, it's hard to say that Tornado Cash would be a a person or a national under the relevant statute. Because what we're talking about here is a decentralized open source software project that's comprised of a bunch of smart contracts or pools that sit on the Ethereum blockchain. 
And to say that the statute or the regulations um, that require a, a foreign national or person to be involved, to say that that is a foreign national or person uh, is too broad. Obviously, OFAC was arguing um, for a, a, the broadest possible interpretation. And I know you've acknowledged that that's consistent with with the position they've taken in other in other cases. Yeah. So so a couple things about that. I mean, OFAC defines things like person. I think we've talked about this when, when we've written about it, property, interest in property, very, very broadly. And and it does so so that it gives itself discretion to to adapt these terms to new situations. And so, you know, one of the arguments that Tornado Cash was making was, hey, we're not we don't fit within your definition of person. And OFAC has has a definition of person that really tries to capture any type of organization or, you know, natural person um, within it. You know, it usually then talks about foreign persons or U.S. persons, so it gives a little bit more definition as to the terms. But person is is very very broad. Other terms it uses is very very broad, and that's that's fine because it makes the terms adaptable. But there has been some commentary from the federal judiciary that defining these terms so broadly, while perhaps the regulators can do it and they have good reasons to do it, particularly in the national security context, it does create due process and fair notice issues when you use these broad terms and then you you know make a an application of first impression in the course of an enforcement proceeding because it's one thing to say hey we want to be able to regulate broadly it's another thing to say hey we've never defined this term to include x you know as tornado, tornado cash was arguing that it was not a person and and it, it was a different form of organization that there was no precedent defining it as person and that's fine as far as it goes, but then when you add on, and we're going to enforce this against you and essentially punish you for um, doing something without having defined this term before, that potentially creates due process and fair notice issues when when this, these new broad terms are defined for the first time in the enforcement context. And so, you know, there's litigation over this because of that issue, I think. I think that's certainly in the backdrop of, of why Tornado Cash brought this litigation in the first instance. And it wasn't totally clear to me from reading the decision that the court took those concerns as seriously as some other courts have taken them. Right. And the other thing you'll see, you know, what observation I had was when you see other courts handling things like smart contracts in other contexts, um, you know, some courts really take a deep dive into the technology underpinning some of these protocols how the smart tra- contracts actually work and that's not something that you saw at, at the same level in the in the uh, district court opinion that came out in this matter um so so we shall see but ultimately what the court said is um first of all tornado cash is because it is an association falls rightly in the statue as a person and also it, it focused a lot on Tornado Cash's DAO, which is the organization um, that now um, is a decentralized group of users, essentially, that can vote on how the governance of Tornado Cash works um, by use of these torn tokens. And they said that the, the, the DAO has a property interest in smart contracts and that smart contracts qualify as property. Um, and so ultimately what what of the court said is OFAC had this right and they didn't exceed their their authority um, on this point. Um, 
it'll I think you know if some of the facts were different in this case the the call may have been closer as you mentioned um this is on appeal so I think there's definitely more to come um a couple of other observations I have from the case is they talk about the first amendment challenge the crux of that argument is plaintiffs are saying well if you are shutting down this mixing service um you're chilling constitutionally perfect uh, protected socially valuable speech because people are using these services to make contributions to political and social causes. Court said um, the the idea that we're shutting down one mixing service is not um, is not enough to say to say that the the plaintiffs that First Amendment uh, rights were violated as there are alternate alternate ways in which you can you can um, support causes anonymously. Um, and then the last thing, and I want your take on this because we talked a bit about this earlier, um, takings clause uh, and, and the claims under the taking, um, the take the Fifth Amendment takings clause. Yeah. So, it, oh, go ahead. I, I, on the takings clause issue, I, I definitely think that that is an issue that is percolating in the backdrop of, of U.S. sanctions and has been for a while. And I think that that is why OFAC generally goes out of its way. You know, to, the specially designated nationals generally mean specially designated foreign nationals. They, they don't exclusively mean that, but they, you know, and if you look at the definitions, they don't say that, but that's generally who gets put on the SDN list or foreign companies and foreign people. I think OFAC has done that in part to limit the ability to challenge these designations because there's been arguments that the government generally makes that, that, that whoever is designated and whatever company is designated, if they're foreign, they don't have any constitutional rights to really challenge this. And I think that, that while it goes to due process, I think it also goes to the takings claim. That's the first step that OFAC takes. But then the other thing is that they, they're also very careful to say, we're not taking your property, we're freezing it, and we're going to give you interest. So you can't complain that we're holding it without giving you interest for this property. And, you know, when your behavior changes, you can get your property back. Now, as a practical matter, there are many, many, many hurdles, and and, and this is very akin to, to taking the property. But those claims really haven't been developed much for a variety of reasons. But I think the main one is that generally OFAC is not uh, it, it, is, it goes out of its way to try and limit those claims by providing interest, by by technically freezing your money, by not designating U.S. persons very often. And so it, it has avoided much litigation on these issues. But I will say that, you know, let's say, for example, you're not the, the officers and directors of Tornado Cash, but let's say you are an account holder in T Tornado Cash and your money is blocked because tornado cash is blocked that does make it a you know that that sort of challenge seems pretty strong to me if you could get the right set of facts it's not necessarily these facts but maybe these facts will win i don't i don't know there's an appeal and i'm sure that the lawyers at paul weiss will do a spectacular job of 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 you know identifying and articulating all of the interests at stake here but but i think that there are some serious interests at stake here because essentially what happens when OFAC blocks your property is it says it's in the national interest to essentially make your property worthless for the foreseeable future. And so therefore we will do it. And and when it comes to wrongdoers, you know, or individuals OFAC believes are wrongdoers, okay, um, 
you know, and you do have some process to go get your property back. But it, if when it comes to innocent parties, that becomes more difficult, which is again, so OFAC in those circumstances will often have, you know, if you're an account holder and your bank is blocked or your, you know, mixer is blocked, you can, they'll, they'll have general licenses that allow you to essentially, you know, withdraw the funds from your accounts, at least from for a certain amount of time. And so, so, you know, what they call wind down licenses. So there are ways that OFAC essentially avoids litigation on this issue, but the taking issue in my view you know is a, is a pretty serious issue that um you know at some point will will get raised in the right context and we'll see some pretty serious litigation on it and maybe this is the right context you know we'll see what happens in the fifth circuit yeah and to that point i mean i think what the, the plaintiffs would argue is hey we're just users we're innocent users here we're talking about um, interactions with smart contracts, which are immutable and they exist in perpetuity. And the idea that, you know, because, because I think anybody associated with Tornado Cash would take the opinion that there are no officers or directors because it's a decentralized, um, decentralized protocol and platform. And so, so yeah, it'll, it'll be really interesting to see how that shapes out. Well, in that one, I have a lot more sympathy. I mean, I, I have sympathy for OFAC on, on both of these issues because there are serious national security concerns, like the, the ransomware attacks, and then, you know, the follow-ups with with the payments and, you know, that were, you know, in, in the view of the national security officials, and I have no reason to doubt this, state-sponsored by malign states like North Korea. Like, that's a real problem, and these sorts of restrictions are designed to address that real problem. Um, and so, you know, I have sympathy. I have sympathy e even there for where OFAC is going. But when it comes to when, when it comes to the, you know, the, and I, I guess the, the the other issue that you were just talking about, Leah, involves the you've got a structure that seems to basically say you can't hold anyone accountable, right? Because if it, it or at least anyone accountable for allowing the use of this sort of mechanism in a way that, you know, in, in the U.S.'s view, you know, interferes with national security. So if I'm Lazarus Group and I use Tornado Cash to essentially hide my ransomware ransoms, in Tornado Cash's view, the only remedy that OFAC has is to find Lazarus group and go after Lazarus group, which it's already done. And you can't punish the mechanism in any way because it's too decentralized. It's just the users and just the collection of the users. And I have some sympathy for OFAC for the and and the US and with the idea of well, like that can't be right. Like there's gotta be some way we can stop this mechanism and you can't just decentralize and tell us there's nobody to get here. So there is no such thing as tornado cash. So go take your designation somewhere else. Right. And, and I think the, the Treasury Department and the broader U.S. government has been has a heightened awareness around that issue when it relates to DeFi. I mean, we saw in April of this year, Treasury Department put out what I thought was a very thoughtful DeFi risk assessment that goes through these things and frankly takes somewhat of a cynical view on whether uh, certain you know, offerings in the in the virtual asset ecosystem are indeed centralized. Um, and really, you know, they say, listen, you, we need to do a fact specific um, deep dive into whether that's actually true. And um, it, yeah, that document for anybody who's interested in these issues is really, really helpful. Um, and I think is a good model for other jurisdictions who are grappling with, with sort of complicated issues around DeFi and, and enforcement. Um, yeah. And these, I mean, these, you know, and DeFi, for those of you who are not 
you know, as crypto nerds, it's, you know, decentralized finance. It's essentially a, a way of taking the control that banks would have over funds that are there and stepping back from that so that the, there's lots of different mechanisms through the blockchain that can be used so that there's essentially in some sense no one in charge now that's really what leah is talking about is that you know the, the reports on this suggest that maybe that's not as true as as people like to say and whoever came up with the the DeFi name may have decided that that was a good branding but maybe it's not as as true in fact as it is in kind of brand and, and I, I know we've, we've talked about turning out of cash quite a bit, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But this idea of whether or not the tornado cash is indeed decentralized and the involvement um, and the control and the involvement of specific individuals in the protocol is, I think, sort of the crux and the key point in the, the ongoing criminal proceedings related to tornado cash. So um in also in August, um, just after the the district court's opinion came out on the OFAC designation piece, um, two of Tornado Cash's co-founders um, were indicted on a variety of, of criminal charges, um, including but not limited to conspiracy to commit certain sanctions violations. Um, the indictment talks a lot about the the Lazarus uh, group heist that we've referenced. Um, other other charges they face are conspiracy to operate an unlicensed money transmitting business, conspiracy to commit money laundering. Um, but much of that indictment, um, the indictment's thorough, spends time talking about how these two individuals were not merely uh, code writers for the protocol, but that they had been actively engaged throughout the period of the alleged illicit conduct and were aware that bad actors or illicit actors were using um, using the service and failed to take steps to stop that from happening. Um, and so you see this tension um, with, with, with Tornado Cash saying we're, we're completely decentralized and some of the facts presented in the indictment showing that there were individuals that may have had certain levels of control and certainly certain levels of knowledge about bad activity happening um, so that's ongoing. We'll see how that shakes out, but but really interesting stuff. Yeah, and I think the issues that we just talked about will likely be at the backdrop of that criminal litigation as well, right? Because essentially, not only now do you have these, you know, issues that were pretty pretty uncharted in terms of, you know, what how decentralized are these systems and what are the what are what is the responsibility for the service owner to essentially police the the activities of its customers these are going to be at the forefront if i had to guess of the criminal litigation as well because when you start to have these uncharted issues and you know first time precedents in the context of a criminal case again you 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 wade into these sort of notice and due process issues on the other hand to the extent that these systems really were not decentralized and that these individuals had, you know, individual knowledge and culpability, you, those issues go away, right? And so that's going to be the heart of that case is, was this really a decentralized, I, I, just a guess, I mean, there may be other issues, but that, that was this issue, was this, was Tornado Cash really decentralized in a way that, you know, Storm and Seminoff 
didn't know and really had no reason to know that their system was being used in such a way, and that'll also turn on the sorts of controls that were in place and the sorts of, or did they have individual knowledge and were essentially, you know, facilitating uh, sanctions violations, money laundering, that sort of thing. And one last, one last bit on Tornado Cash. I think um, another, we talked about some of the challenges associated with DeFi and the enforcement space. One other thing is because Tornado Cash is run on these immutable smart contracts, um, it's still going. It, unlike um, Blender, which was another mixing service that OFAC designated that was more centralized, there's somebody that you can call up on the phone and say, for centralized uh, offerings, take this down. Um, and with Tornado Cash, um, they were able to take the front end website down, um, but the you can still access the the services of the protocol. Um, and and from what I've seen in recent statistics, the interactions and the use has gone way down since the sanctions. Um, but it's it's still existing because of of the fact that it's running off of these these immutable smart contracts, which is kind of interesting from an enforcement perspective and effectiveness yeah. of sanctions, frankly. Yep. No, I think I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right, and and you know is likely to be an issue that we see continue to percolate post um, post tornado cash. Well, why don't we turn now um, to a little bit more? You know, you, you I think you've already previewed this already, Leah. But you know, in in October, um, just so in October nineteenth, so just last week, less than a week ago, FinCEN proposed some new regulation to enhance what they call enhanced transparency and convertible virtual virtual currency mixing and combat terrorist financing. And, and I'll set the stage and then let you talk about what they did. I mean, this gets back again to when you you look at the tornado cash designation and. OFAC was very clear that mixers have plenty of legitimate activity. When they're talking about legitimate activity, it's essentially using a financial service, but at the same time maintaining anonymity and privacy for what I think the U.S. would view as legitimate reasons, right? You are a you are a dissident in a country that the U.S. believes has a, an oppressive government, and you want to be able to engage in protest activity, in activity designed to, um, you know, fight the oppressor, for lack of a better term. Um, and you want, and, and you need money to do that, and so you want to be able to use a mixer to protect your privacy, so that you're you're able to engage in what the U.S. views as legitimate kind of resistance activity. Um, for a government that the U.S. uses is harmful and not get caught, right? So you want to hide your activity from the government, for lack of a better term, but the U.S. views that hiding of the activity as in a good way. And there are legitimate reasons in business that that companies would want privacy to protect trade secrets or to protect, you know, the, the, the example that I often see is that if, you know, um, the the if Amazon is going to come in and buy up a bunch of property in a particular area, it doesn't want everyone in the world to know about that for legitimate reasons because it, once everybody realizes that Amazon is, going, is in the market, the price goes up. So they want to keep anonymity for reasons that relate to kind of protecting their commercial interests, but in a completely legitimate way. And so, so that's the sort of legitimate activity that I think OFAC was talking about in the Tornado Cash indictment. On the other hand, you know, the the and it's a little bit ironic because it's basically depends on the eye of the beholder. 
OFAC would view obviously what they view as terrorist groups or groups that are engaging in activities that are opposed to the interests of the United States. If they're using mixers, then obviously that's you know illegitimate activity and they want transparency in those sets of circumstances. Now, the reason I say it's a little bit ironic is because when we talk about dissident activity or activity of, of, of resistance groups in other countries, what, what essentially OFAC is saying is that it's okay to hide your activity from those governments because they're bad. But it's not okay to hide your activity from us because we're good. And so so it is kind of in the eye of the beholder as to when you view uh, these sorts of privacy protecting devices as as licit and, and when you view them as, as illicit. But that having been said, I think there are certain activities that most people can agree with that are you know beyond the pale and we don't want want um we don't want financing to be easy and i think that's what fincen is getting at with these new regulations and with that stage setting why don't you talk about exactly what fincen did sure so um and i think as we said it's consistent with with the the u.s enforcement authorities overall approach to um you know the crypto ecosystem and particularly with respect to mixers but what they did is they released this proposed rule um, that would designate convertible virtual currency mixing services as a category of transactions that are a what what the statute allows for is a primary money laundering concern. Um, and just a little bit of statutory background there. There's a part of the U.S. Patriot Act, so it's Section 311, that allows for Treasury if it finds reasonable grounds for determining that a class of transactions or an entity um, present uh, uh, primary money laundering concerns, that it can um, require certain uh, financial institutions, domestic financial institutions, to have to take special measures. So there are five different um, special measures that are set out. Um, in the regulations. And the one that this rule focuses on is special measure one, um, which requires domestic financial institutions to maintain certain records um, and file reports um, concerning the, the transactions that are at issue. So um, this is interesting because by relying on section 311, this is the first time that um, FinCEN is targeting a specific activity as opposed usually when they're doing this they're focused on a jurisdiction or they're focused on a particular entity um and here they're saying this entire body of activity is something that we consider to be a primary money laundering concern um so so what it would require in practice at least as as it's it's laid out in the proposed rule currently is that covered financial institutions um, would have to report to FinCEN a variety of activity, a variety of information for transactions that are CBC transactions, so virtual currency transactions that touch on mixing services, or put another way, where the um, where the financial institution has reason to suspect or know that the the transaction is is touching mixing services. Um, and so 
and, and by the way, this Tim would be separate and apart from these covered financial institutions requirements to file, for example, suspicious activity reports or other reports that they're required to file um, under the Main Secrecy Act. Um, it also requires the parties or would require the parties to collect certain information around the customers that are associated with these transactions. Um, important to note, however, that these are, we're talking about reporting obligations as it relates to transactions in virtual currency. So this, at least as drafted, would not expand to fiat. Um, so we're talking about transactions in dollars. It would not deal with, uh, with transactions in fiat if at some point in the past the transaction had touched a mixing service, but then was off-ramped and turned into off-ramp from you know, the blockchain and turned into and turned into fiat. It would, it's only talking about transactions um, in virtual currency. Uh, so, anyways, so that that has come out. It's it's an interesting read. I think the rules around eighty the proposed rules around eighty pages. The the government does acknowledge that there's legitimate use, but they go through the sort of a three-prong analysis as to why um, they believe that that this category of activities should be should be considered a, a primary money laundering concern. Um, they've asked for comments. The comment period runs until January of 24. Um, so we'll be very interesting to see where it shakes out um, and see what kind of comments come through the line on this. Yeah, I'll be interested too, because I, I look, and we're going to talk about it in a second. I mean, there are very good reasons that the government wants to crack down on mixers because it believes that they're being used to fund lots of dangerous, harmful, you know, beyond the pale type activity. And so, you know, nothing that we say here should be suggested to undermine that. But there's also real issues here about a, a, a form of a transaction that OFAC said, just a little over a year ago, says most most transactions, and I'll go back and read the designation from Tornado Cash. While most virtual currency activity is illicit, it can be used for illicit activity. That's August of 2022. By October of 2023, essentially this form of activity is treated as inherently suspect. And so, you know, and maybe the world changed in that year, but but certainly OFAC's and and you know FinCEN's also in Treasury, so Treasury's view of mixing activity from August 2022 to October of 2023 changed 180 degrees, or it sure seems to have, because they've made it presumptively concerning just using this sort of activity. And, and I think there's this been this broader evolution, right? So you have back in 2018, you have OFAC sanctioning just two individuals, Iranian individuals, and a few of their addresses associated with a ransomware attack. And then now you're seeing this progression from 2018 up to today, where OFAC is going after larger, larger entities, the the number of addresses that are included when OFAC is, is designating these entities um, is, is much broader than when they initially started, you know, targeting uh, individuals or entities in the in the crypto space. And, and then here you have Treasury by, by way of FinCEN, I'm focusing on an entire class of activities in the the virtual currency ecosystem. Really, yeah. Just just to follow on to that, because you know the at FinCEN in its in its announcement talked about the, this sort of evolution. Although many of the actions were taken, you know, before OFAC said in August of 2022 that most of this activity was licit. You know, OFAC designated Blender 
.io in or um, in uh, it looks like sometime around February of 2022, Axel Infinity Heist in May of 2022, the designation of Tornado Cash in August of 2022, um, you know, and and so if you go and then uh, January 2023, um, Bitslato Limited was identified as a, as a an exchange of primary money laundering concern. They list all of those, that progression over the course of about a year or so as evidence that this is being used more and more by, by criminals. And, and maybe that's true. I mean, maybe that, you know, 180 has been the result of just more and more information suggesting that the, the prior, the, the majority or the, the, the bulk of these transactions are, are used to hide what OFAC and Treasury view as, as illicit activity. But, but, you know that's still to be to be determined but i think you know one of the drivers of this announcement obviously was you know the the terrible um situation in the middle east and and the attack by hamas on on israelis in southern israel um and the us response to that i mean the timing of this announcement was october 19th which was shortly afterwards and then at the same time you know there were these designations of what the us viewed as as uh, companies and, and individuals that were viewed in the, that were used in the, the financing of that attack. So why don't you talk a little bit about that, Leah, um, to kind of complete the picture as to why this announcement came out when it did. Great. So um, as you mentioned, just around the same time um, and consistent with not only OVAC, but the broader U.S. government's position that um, these anon anonymizing tools um, really can be significant tools for terrorist financing. Um, the Treasury um, sanctioned various individuals um, and an entity, notably um, a an exchange based in Gaza. Um, the exchange is Bycash Money and Money Transfer Company, or Bycash. Um, and it's a it's a business that provides money transfer and virtual currency exchange services. It, it, the, the announcement notes that it touches Bitcoin among others. Um, the announcement also notes that Bycash has been associated with funding other um, terrorist organizations, including Al Qaeda, um, in the past. Um, and and so they designated both Bycash and an individual who they define as as it's Bycash's representative and owner, um, and they're being designated for having materially assisted, sponsored, or provided material or technological support in support of Hamas. Um, and you know it's interesting they, they they talk a bit about Hamas's use of. Um, virtual currency fundraising in, in the announcement. Um, and it certainly um, that coincides with, with this FinCEN proposed new reg um, and, and the underlying purpose of, of that. Yeah, so I, I mean, it, and it was, it, it was interesting that the US was able to trace this financing so quickly and then talk about you know, other activities that these groups had been involved in when they, they hadn't been sanctioned previously, but, but I, I I do think that you know it highlights where if you're trying to to look at the trend line with respect to mixers and virtual currency, I think you just you know put your finger on it, Leah, which is as of say um, 
you know, 2018, I think the U.S. was being relatively cautious with this. Even as of August 2022, the announcement about tornado cash was much more geared towards like, this is a bad apple in an otherwise kind of good industry. And by October of 2023, I think we're now the government's view appears to be, this is a really dirty industry and we're going to, you know, basically come in and, and police it way, way, way more closely than we have before. And we'll see what the implications of that are. Yeah. And uh, one last thing I'll note in the and the announcement on the on the designations related to to buy cash, um, it looks like the the U.S. authorities, unsurprisingly, were closely coordinating um, with the Israeli authorities, who had already seized a number of wallets in connection with some of Hamas's fundraising campaigns a few years ago. Um, so I, I just thought that was you know an interesting shout out because of the coordination piece there. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a great point and one that, you know, we see uh, in, in our practices quite quite a bit. And, and the, tr- the, the timeline is pretty similar to the one that you just described, which is, tw- but, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, it was relatively rare for um, law enforcement agencies, even in allied countries, to be cooperating with the United States in a really coordinated way. I mean, it was happening, but it wasn't happening all that often. And it was kind of the exception and not the rule. And now, you know, what we see, it, it, certainly in the sanctions space, in the AML space, and in the FCPA space, and and in the, you know, now in the the, the coordination of regulators space with respect to sanctions, has been this massive uptick. I mean, in sanctions, we've talked about it on other podcasts, where, you know, it used to be even five years ago, I had a matter that had an OFSI piece and a and a OFAC piece. And we assumed, because you have to, to be careful, that OFAC and OFSI were coordinating, but they really weren't. And it was pretty clear as time went on that they were. We, again, were being cautious and assuming that they'd talk to each other. So if we told something to OFSI, we should assume that OFAC knew it and vice versa. But I just don't think that was happening. And now, you know, OFAC and OFSI, I think, have daily meetings to, to, to coordinate. And I think that it's the same way, you know, I, my guess is that the, those same sorts of meetings are happening with the Israelis and the U.S. in this situation. And I know, you know, your practice in Latin America and your practice in Europe, you see those those things all the time and in your practice in Africa and everywhere else that you are because you're all around the world. Yeah. Um, and, and Tim, just kind of going back to where we started and sort of the upshot of all this, right? So so what what I'm thinking folks should keep in mind, and I don't want to lose the context here, which is if you look at, and there are really smart people who have released really comprehensive reports on this stuff. If you look at the overall transaction volume in the crypto sphere, in the crypto ecosystem, illicit activity, most of the experts would tell you illicit activity is a very small percentage of the overall transaction volume. But if I'm an actor in the in the crypto ecosystem, especially and parts of the ecosystem that I know the U.S. enforcement authorities care about, which is, you know, they're hyper focused on things that make their job as investigators harder. Um, so anything that is is interfering with the transparency of the blockchain itself. Um, so your AECs, your mixers and the like. Um, People should take a real hard look at their at their activities 
whether they need to be taking proactive compliance measures if they're, you know, an MSP or otherwise an, an entity that would fall under some of the Bank Secrecy Act uh, regulations. Or, um, you know, if you're an individual in, in a coder, as we saw in, in the tornado cash criminal indictment, um, you, you should take a look and see, make sure that, you know, if you are involved in developing some of these protocols, that you're not uh, knowingly engaging or otherwise turning your turning a blind eye to, to things that to things that are uh, look like or smell bad. Yeah, no, I think that's those are all great points in terms of compliance. And and I think that, you know, for, for me, I, I feel like you've got the regulators looking at this and saying, hey, you know, we thought cash was really bad. And so we've basically gotten cash out of the economy because cash had so many different ways of being used in ways that you couldn't track. And now we're, crypto is the new cash and we've got, we've got to go back to the drawing board and they are. And so as we saw in the financial industry in the 2008, you know, from 2008 to maybe 2020, there was this real battle for compliance and transparency that they that I think regulators thought they had really made the financial system much more transparent. And now they're seeing that this this is the pendulum coming back and swinging the other way. And we'll probably see the same sort of trend throughout the 2020s. Absolutely. And there's a really important role, I think, for folks in the in the virtual asset community, as well as enforcement authorities. And you know, there are a lot of efforts, including some efforts that are being run by FATF right now to try to try to develop some of the some solutions to some of the issues that we talked about today. So it'll be exciting to keep following along and to see where some of these matters land. And that will be the last word. So thank you for joining me, Leah. This was great. And stay sanctions free, everybody. Thanks for listening. Produced by HeartCast Media.